The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, we're studying in John 1, verse 15 and 16, where we're looking at John the Baptist and his announcement that Jesus was the one who comes after him, was preeminent and existed before him. Then John the Apostle introduces a comment, a commentary on John's statement. John said Jesus was preeminent. And John says, why is this important that Jesus is the preeminent one? For, in the Greek word, in the Greek, the word for this is gar, for. And one thing we learn in basic Greek class is that gar always introduces an explanation. So when you do your Bible study, in the Greek, and you see that, you immediately ask yourself, what's the principle we're explaining here? Now, while the men are all closing the windows, we'll just take a little metal break so everybody doesn't get too distracted. So much is going on this way. What a day, huh? A test of our relaxed mental attitude. Yeah, well, well, I think it's more like count it all joy because that... But this is joy based on circumstances because now the air conditioner is on. The Lord's not going to test us beyond our ability to, to handle the heat, right? Okay. The passage. Now, this is really important. Some critical doctrinal things that we're going to pull out of this passage. John is writing this. Now, remember, John the Baptist makes this statement at somewhere around 29 to 30 A.D. And he's making a prophetic announcement that someone's going to come after him who existed prior to him because he existed before him. He's the preeminent one. Now, why did he say that? What is the significance of that? So, when John the Apostle writes, some 60 years later, in about 95 A.D., he's going to explain the significance of that remark. He says, for of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Why is it important? This relates to the whole doctrine of the hypostatic union. Because the word that we find here is the Greek word pleroma. Pleroma. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. Pleroma. And we have to look at the significance of this word because it has some some powerful doctrinal implications. Because from His fullness, from the fullness of Jesus Christ, we receive. So what then is the fullness? We receive this from His pleroma. What exactly is the pleroma of Jesus Christ? Well, keep your place here in John chapter 1, and we're going to look at a couple of important passages to see how this is de- thought of Pleroma is developed in the New Testament. Turn to Colossians 1.19. Colossians 
19. We're going to move around a little bit this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Twice the Apostle Paul uses Pleroma and Colossians, and then he uses, them in, uses the word in a completely different way when we get to Ephesians. The basic meaning of the word is completion. To be complete, to be full, to fill up. It has the idea of totality and fullness. Play Roma. Okay? That's the idea here. Colossians 1.19 Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the Pleroma to dwell in Him. For the fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ. Well, what exactly is this fullness? Turn the page to Colossians 2.9 For in Him that is, Jesus Christ, all the pleroma of deity, here it's defined as the pleroma, which consists of deity, existed in bodily, dwells in bodily form. Here we have the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Let's remind ourselves of the definition of the hypostatic union. This describes, as a technical theological term, which de- describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. So what we see in Colossians 1.9 is a clear statement that in Christ you have full, undiminished deity, the complete deity, all that makes God God, exists in the person of Jesus Christ in bodily form. So this is the union of the deity and true humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. So the fullness here in Colossians 1.9, the fullness relates to the complete essence of God. What is the essence of God? The essence of God consists in sovereignty, Perfect righteousness, absolute justice, immeasurable love, eternal life, omniscience, God knows all the knowable, omnipotence, God can do whatever needs to be done to accomplish His will, omnipresence, God is present to every aspect of His creation at every point in time, God is infinite. There are no bounds or limitations to God or any of His attributes. And God is veracity. He is absolute truth. All of these attributes exist in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They exist equally in all three persons of the Trinity. So all of these existed completely fully. This is the fullness that exists in the Son. So here we have, in terms of John's statement in in the Gospel, that Jesus Christ, of His fullness, of His fullness from His, all that He is, including His deity, 
and His humanity, this is His fullness, undiminished deity and true humanity, we have received. For of His fullness, we have all received. Now, what exactly does that mean? How do we receive from His fullness? Now we have to turn to another Pauline epistle. Turn back two epistles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Here, Paul is going to use this word pleroma in a much different sense. A much different sense. At the end of this prayer, this Pauline prayer at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, this passage requires just a little bit of exegesis to make sure we understand it properly. And come to know the love for Christ. Now, this is a genitive. It is, we have agape plus the genitive of Christ. Well, genitives, as any Greek student learns, it's really funny, when you go to seminary, you think, if I learn Greek and I learn Hebrew, I'll be able to solve a lot of problems. Well, it also generates a lot of problems. Because what you discover is that in in Greek, you look at the genitive and there are about 25 different nuances to a genitive case. So you have to look at the context and say, what is the nuance here? What's the sense here? What kind of genitive is this? And this is a what is called an objective genitive. Now, an objective genitive is a genitive that, that emphasizes the, the object of the genitive as the ob, almost the object of the verbal idea. So here it would be translated, but to know the love for Christ. The love for Christ. To know what is the love for Christ. This is what we discuss under the theological concept of occupation with Christ. It's a process. The the verb here, to know, is an ingressive aorist, which means it's a progressive concept. It's the beginning of something. To know, we grow. As we learn doctrine, you can't love someone you do not know. There are all kinds of silly, superficial Christians running around who claim to love Jesus, and they don't have a clue as to who Jesus is. They don't understand anything more than that He saved them. Now, that's great for a starting point. I don't want to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. But that's only a starting point. They don't understand anything about the hypostatic union. They don't understand anything about the impeccability of Christ. They don't understand anything about how Jesus Christ's life on the earth under the ministry and the filling of the Holy Spirit provided the basis and set the precedent for the unique spiritual life that we have in the church age. They do not understand uh, all of the doctrines of redemption and propitiation and atonement and reconciliation and all of their implications. They don't understand the tremendous concept of kenosis. Without understanding any of those things, how can you know Jesus? And if you don't know Jesus, how can you love Him? So the love for Christ is a growth process that is determined by our uh, understanding of doctrine. Now, Then the next phrase is, relates to our understanding of doctrine. To know the love for Christ which surpasses 
knowledge. Well, what kind of knowledge is this? The Greek word here is gnosis. It surpasses gnosis. Now, gnosis equals academic knowledge. What happens in the process of learning doctrine is that the pastor-teacher communicates doctrine and the Holy Spirit makes it clear to the believer as pneumatikos. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes doctrine understandable to the believer. It is transferred to the left lobe of the soul called, in English we would call it the mind, in Greek it's called the nous, N-O-U-S. There it becomes gnosis. Academic knowledge. This is a staging area. And it says here that the love for Christ surpasses knowledge. It surpasses academic knowledge. Academic knowledge isn't enough. It's the starting point. You can't get there without academic knowledge. You have to start there, but you go beyond it. You go beyond it when you believe what you're taught. God the Holy Spirit drives it home deep in your soul to the right lobe, which is the heart, the cardia. K-A-R-D-I-A. This is not an emotional term. The heart refers to the innermost thoughts of the mind. The right lobe of the soul, which is where your, your deepest thinking takes place. And there the Holy Spirit circulates doctrine in your soul. This is meditation. When you think about doctrine, it circulates through your soul and God the Holy Spirit stores it there and recalls these things to your mind so that you can apply them at times of testing when you encounter the tests of doctrine that we've been studying in James chapter 1. So, we read in Ephesians 3.19 to know the love for Christ which surpasses gnosis that you may be what? Filled up, that is, brought to completion to all the fullness of God. Now, the word for filled here, the first word, the verb, is plerao. A cognate, the verbal form, plerao. Now, I'm going to draw some interesting connections here. This is what's called doing theology. You have plerao, which is a verb, which means to be filled. It also means to be completed. Pleroma, this is P-L-E-R-O-O. This is P-L-E-R-O-M-A. This is the noun, and it refers to the fullness or completion. Now, how are we filled? Keep your finger right here in Ephesians. Turn over two pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled 
And that's a command, imperative mood, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have this verb, plerao, as an imperative. And the object of the verb is the phrase, is a dative, pneumati. From the Greek pneuma. Meaning the Spirit. Be filled by means of. That's the thrust of the dative. It indicates means or instrumentality. Now, if you wanted to indicate content, you would have used a genitive case. But it's not a genitive. It's a, it's a dative. This is where grammar really makes an important difference. Now, I had a coffee cup. And I said, fill this with coffee. What's the content of the cup? What's the content of the filling? It's the coffee. I would use a genitive case, and if I were speaking Greek, I would use a genitive case and I, to say, fill it with coffee. If I used a, a dative case, I would be saying, fill it with something, by means of something. So I would be saying, fill it by means of the pitcher. Fill it by means of the coffee pot. I'm indicating the means by which the cup is filled. I'm not talking about what's in the cup. I'm talking about how that cup is brought to completion, is filled up. What's the content of the cup, though? That's what we're striving to answer right now. So, uh, to do that, we need to look at the... Just briefly with me, I'm flying through this fairly rapidly, but we haven't had time to lay a lot of groundwork, and this is important information. After the command, be filled with the Spirit, you have several um, uh, participles which describe the results of the filling with the Spirit. Being filled by means of the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart, that is your mind, the right lobe of your soul. So that the singing is a cognitive activity. It is not viewed here as an emotional activity. That's why I have a lot of problems with this, these slow kind of songs that are popular today, uh, like we are one in the Spirit and everybody just kind of weaves back and forth and sways along with the music and goes into some kind of an emotional state about, oh, isn't it wonderful how Jesus loves us? The purpose of singing is to exercise the mentality of your soul in worshiping God. It is not to get you into an emotional experience so you feel like you're you're worshiping God. That's the problem. And we live in an era today in Christianity when people are using music as a means of worship. In fact, you go to a lot of churches today, they talk about the fact that they have a worship leader. Worship leader used to be the pastor who taught doctrine. Now the worship leader in worship is what goes on before there's any teaching because it's a sermonette for Christianettes. It's 15 minutes and then you're gone and you're preceded by 45 minutes of singing. Well, what's important, if you're at church for an hour and you spend 45 minutes singing and 15 minutes of, of, of some kind of teaching, some kind of teaching, what, um, what's the emphasis there? It's on the singing. So we've gone through a phase in the 80s where now worship is being redefined as singing. That's not what the Scripture says. This is singing that is done from the mentality of the soul because there's doctrine in your soul. And think about it sometime. Look at some of these new little choruses that, are, that, are sing, that we're singing today and just take the words and compare the words to the words of some of the great hymns by Isaac Watts 
or John Wesley or Charles Wesley or compare those words to, to the divinely inspired hymnal, the Psalms, and look at the difference in content. These little trivial choruses today are mostly just shallow, superficial repetitions of the same phrase over and over again. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. And they don't say anything. They have more in common with a Hindu mantra than they do with a, with a true, the biblical concept of a hymn. So, as part of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be able to sing true psalms and hymns that have doctrinal content as you relate back to God what He has done. Secondly, a second result given here is gratitude. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And then a third arena in which this is played out is in terms of relationships. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Then specifically wives in relationship to their husbands. Husbands in relationship to their wives children in relationship to their parents, parents in relationships to their children, and slaves or employees in relationship to their masters or employers. All that's a consequence of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, holding your place there, turn back over one, two books to Colossians, where we were earlier, and look at Colossians 3.15 or 3.16. There the command is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what's supposed to dwell within you here? It's the word of God. It's doctrine. Let the word of Christ, Bible doctrine, dwell in you. What are the results of letting the word of Christ dwell within you? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Where have we just heard that? That's the result of what? The filling by means of the Holy Spirit. But here it's the result of what? Letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Where do we see that idea? Ephesians. Giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then verse 18, Wives, be subject to your husbands. 19, Husbands, love your wives. 20, Children, be obedient to your parents. 21, fathers, don't exasperate your children to wrath. Verse 22, slaves and masters. You notice the parallel? In both passages, you have a list of results. But in the Ephesians passage, the command that brings about the results is to be filled by means of the Spirit. The command in Colossians is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what you have is, in the one hand, you have the Spirit... On the other hand, you have the Word of God, Bible doctrine. Together, they produce these results. The Holy Spirit indicates means. The Word of God indicates the content. This goes back to Operation Z, right up here. The pastor-teacher teaches to the congregation, the individual. Under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you what it means. That is, now you are being filled 
by means of the Holy Spirit. He makes it clear to you. You understand it in your mind and you believe it. And He is the one who stores it in your soul. You are being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't control you. See, some people when they've taught this in the past have emphasized the idea of control. And, it, and, and there's a sense of control there because now the doctrine's in your soul. That's what's dominating your thinking. So there is a sense of control there. But too many people got the idea that, well, I just have to let God do it. If I confess my sins, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, He's going to make the decisions for me. And then they've just fallen flat on their face. Now, every one of us here have run into that or have thought that at one time, haven't we? We've all thought that, that if I just confess my sins and everything's going to be okay and the Holy Spirit will just make it happen. But that's a violation of our volition. Our volition is where it happens. Just as the sin nature doesn't make us sin, it simply tempts us. It's our volition that makes the choice to sin or not. The sin nature only is the source of, and of that influence. And the same thing here. The Holy Spirit, it's a sense of influence. And the Holy Spirit fills us with something. He is the mechanic who is using the tools of the Word of God to reshape our lives. Now, let's go back and put this together with what we see in terms of Pleroma in Ephesians 4, or 3, 19. And that we might come to know the love for Christ, in other words, advancing in our spiritual life to the point of spiritual maturity where we understand occupation with Christ. Let's put, bring to bear here the chart that we've been developing on Wednesday nights. Here is the soul. The soul is fortified by the stress busters, our problem-solving devices. They begin with confession. This is the progress of the spiritual life, beginning with confession, 1 John 1, 9, filling by means of the Holy Spirit, the faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientational, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, inner happiness, and finally, the, the last one, occupation with Christ. When we think like, when our focus in every issue in life is Jesus Christ, what would Jesus Christ do? We can only answer that question if we understand Bible doctrine and know the mind of Christ. We have to think like Christ to be able to choose like Christ. We have to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. So to know, to come to know the love for Christ, which surpasses academic knowledge, that you might be, this is in a subjunctive case, indicating your volition that you have to use 1 John 1, 9 here in terms of the filling by means of the Holy Spirit in order that you might be filled up with what? The content of Scripture, Bible doctrine, to all the fullness, the completion of God. Fullness here is, the, is our word pleroma. Fullness again. Now, fullness, pleroma, has a synonym. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. Pleroma means completion or to be filled. It has a synonym in the Greek. Telios. T-E-L. E-I-O-S. Telios means, often it's translated perfection, but that's a lousy translation. It means maturity. 
to be brought to completion in your spiritual life. To grow to spiritual adulthood so that you can begin to have the invisible impact on your family and on your surroundings that God has as part of His plan for your life. So when we look at this passage in Ephesians 3.19, we understand that pleroma goes from Jesus Christ who had the pleroma of God in Him in reference to the hypostatic union. When He came to earth, He he was going to revolutionize the spiritual life. Because in the Old Testament, the spiritual life was based on the faith-rest drill, but there was no Holy Spirit to empower the believers. What happens with Christ when He comes is He sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. He is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and He is filled by means of the Holy Spirit. In His humanity, He grows in His understanding of doctrine and He applies it and sets the precedent for church age believers as to how to live the spiritual life. The precedent for the church age is not the Old Testament. We referenced this a little bit this morning in Galatians. It was so disjointed because of our problems with the lights and everything else. You might have missed it. But in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law as we're going to see when we get to our study in Galatians 4, is like a schoolmaster. It was to lead people to the Messiah. It was never a way of salvation or the means of spiritual living. It simply was a schoolmaster. It was the law for a believer and unbeliever alike in the Old Testament. But what happens when we get into the New Testament is that we have a new basis for the spiritual life. The unique spiritual life of the church age is uniquely based on the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we'll get into in Galatians chapter 5. It is the Holy Spirit whose production is our spiritual growth. This can be counterfeited through the flesh under the principles of morality. And this is something that many, many believers don't understand. They think that if they're moral, they're spiritual. Now, if you're immoral, you're not spiritual. But if you're moral, that doesn't mean you're spiritual because morality is something that any unbeliever can do. And anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the unique spiritual life of the church age. Because the unique spiritual life is that which is uniquely produced by means of the Holy Spirit. So it is through the Holy Spirit and under His power and influence and His teaching ministry that we grow. And the precedent for that, the model for that, was set by Jesus Christ during the time of the Incarnation. So let's turn back to our passage in John chapter 1. John 1, John the Baptist has commented that about the Messiah that He is the preeminent one. Why is He preeminent? John the Apostle gives us his commentary in verse 16. Because from the source of his pleroma, from his hypostatic union, which in terms of his humanity, the humanity of Christ, he lived out his spiritual life under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit to set the precedent, to set the model for our spiritual life in the church age. Because from his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. That is, the spiritual life grace upon saving grace. Those are the two graces in verse 16. First, grace upon grace. The second grace is salvation grace, 
which is what he says it backward, grace upon grace, spiritual life grace, based upon saving grace. And then we have a further explanation. We have the Greek word gar again, introducing the clause, gar, for, to explain this, the law was given through Moses, but the law was temporal. The law had a specific purpose, and it was related to the nation Israel. We saw all of that this morning in our study of Galatians. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses was just the mediator of the law. But it is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in terms of His messianic role, He is the one who teaches us grace. Grace meaning the sum total of all of God's plan for human history. This does not mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament. What this means is that in Jesus Christ, grace is taken to a new level. We get a full revelation of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Truth relates to the absolute truth and veracity of the Word of God, what we would call Bible doctrine, the complete, total teachings of Jesus Christ. So grace and truth comes from, or is realized, through Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, no man has seen God at any time. Now here I'm going to introduce you to a couple of big words. No one has seen God at any time. Well, in the Old Testament, you have various theophanies. A theophany means an appearance of God. But who was that? Was it God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? See, in the Old Testament, you have God coming and walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. God comes down and walks with Enoch, Methuselah, speaks to Noah, comes and talks in bodily form to Abraham, speaks to Moses. Was this God the Father? Well, this passage says, no man has seen God, that is God the Father, at any time. See, that's not the role of God the Father. God the Father is the architect of the plan. But it is God the Son who is the one who carries it out. It is God the Son who is the revealer to man of God. So, all throughout the Old Testament, you have these theophanies, which are appearances of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Before He had a human body, He appeared to man to reveal God throughout the Old Testament. So, all those appearances in the Old Testament are not of God the Father. They are of the Son in His role as the revealer of God. This is the next clause. The only begotten God. This tells us that this phrase, begotten, is not a term for birth. It means, in the Greek, it's the word monogenes. And it means unique. It's from the Greek word gene, meaning kind, where we get our English word genus, or species. That's M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. And it means unique. Mono is one, genes from genus, meaning one of a kind, uh, are unique. He is the unique son. He is not born, it is not referring to the virgin conception or virgin birth. But this title, if we had time to trace it through the Scriptures, 
And here it specifically refers to the second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate condition. This is a title of Jesus' eternity. He is the only begotten God. Throughout all eternity, He is the begotten One. He is related to God in that fashion. Who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And this is the final verb here. It is this person who has ex egao. E-X-E-G-A-O. It means to bring out, to explain, to develop. He has explained Him. This is where we get our, our word exegesis. To draw something out, to learn something, to explain something. And going into the details of Scripture, we exegete the Scriptures to explain them. So here we're told that it is God the Son, the Logos, this one who was in eternity with God. Back to verse 1. He was in the beginning. He was the Word, and He was with God, and He was God. He was light. He was the light of men. He shines in the darkness. He is the one who continually shone throughout the Old Testament and was continually rejected by the majority of men. But those who did receive Him, God gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And it is this Logos, this second person of the Trinity, who became flesh and dwelt among us, the Incarnation. And we beheld His glory. And so that is the thrust of John's Gospel, to explain the Logos and to explain His glory and how all of that relates to our salvation, that we can believe in Him, faith alone, in Christ alone, and have eternal salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word and just the the tremendous truths that are there and of how You have expressed Your eternal love to us through the gift of Your Son. And right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if there's anyone here that is not assured of their salvation, that this would be the opportunity they have to tell You that they express faith alone in Christ alone that right now they would accept Your free gift of salvation. Father, we thank You for the life of Christ and what He teaches us and what He performed during that time as He modeled for us and set the precedent for us of our eternal salvation and for our spiritual life. That He modeled the concepts of grace and doctrine demonstrated what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit so that we can in turn follow that example as we pursue spiritual maturity that You would be glorified in our lives. Now, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take these truths that we have learned that would help us to understand them, remember them, and apply them in our lives. That we would not just go home and think about what a wonderful lesson it was but that we would think about these things and let these doctrines uh, sift through our minds and meditate on them throughout the coming week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.